I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 48, we read Leave Us Alone by Grover Norquist from 2008. Grover Norquist was born in 1956 and grew up in Weston, Massachusetts. He became involved with politics at an early age. He graduated from Harvard University in 1974, where he earned his bachelor's and MBA degrees and was the editor of the Harvard Crimson. Norquist was the executive director of the National Taxpayers Union and the National College Republicans until 1983, then served as an economist and chief speech writer for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce until 1984. In 1985, he founded Americans for Tax Reform with the goal of reducing taxes and became extremely influential in the conservative movement. Norquist remains the group's president today. He pioneered the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, a pledge signed by lawmakers who agree to oppose increases in marginal income tax rates for individuals and businesses. Grover Norquist is kind of an institution inside the Beltway of D.C., very well known. A lot of us have been around him a little bit. And as Kyle said, he founded for the, the Americans for Tax Reform, which is an advocacy organization. I want to read a little bit of their kind of charter statement just to give us a sense. It says, we believe in a system in which taxes are simpler, flatter, more visible, and lower than they are today. The government's power to control one's life derives from its power to tax. We believe that power should be minimized. The flagship project of the American for Tax Reform is the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, a written promise by legislators and candidates for office that commits them to oppose any effort to increase income taxes on individuals and businesses. Today, the Taxpayer Protection Pledge is offered to every candidate for state and federal office and to all incumbents. Nearly 1,400 elected officials from state representative to governor to U.S. Senator have signed the pledge. Well, so at this point, the no tax pledge has become a near mandatory ritual for Republican politicians and and would-be candidates. It, it actually has wielded tremendous influence over the years among conservatives, you know, mostly due actually to the, to the buy-in, and we'll call it enforcement, among the Republican primary voters. You know, the conservative activists are always on the, on the lookout. I think it's safe to say that just about all of them have, have heard of the no-tax pledge. And so this is Grover. You know, he invented the idea. Again, I've, I've been around him a little bit. I can't say that I know him well. The, the man is anti-tax to his core. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to select this reading because I think it's important for for all of us to think in terms also of how, how conservative thought is, is put into practice. And I think Rover is probably maybe the best example of a very successful example of taking kind of that conservative mindset, turning it into political action. And so he wrote, he wrote this book. That begins with this great quote by George Bernard Shaw, who said, a government that robs Peter to pay Paul can always depend on the support of Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, that's pretty much Grover. That's pretty much the Americans for Tax Reform. He sees 
the engines of political influence arrayed on on two sides in a in a, in an epic battle. On the one side, you have what he calls the "Leave Us Alone" coalition, and that's a center right movement, a coalition of groups and individuals that have one thing in common. That is, they don't want the government to give them something or take something from others. They just want to be left alone. And then on the other side is the Takings Coalition, is what he calls it, the Takings Coalition. He says these groups and individuals view the proper role of government as taking things from one group and giving them to someone else. They want the state to take something from one one group and give it to others. It's, it's as good a division as any in American politics. He lays it out nicely and, and it talks about the subgroups within each coalition. But that's, I think we've talked about through the course of this podcast and people have talked about it elsewhere. That, that really is it. I mean, do you want your, we all have ideas about how the world should work. But do you want the government to force them or not? And that's, that's really the cleavage in American life now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in other Western countries too, although I think more here probably than anywhere else that we have such a, what Norquist calls a, a majority on the center right. And he, he may be right about that. That is united around this general idea of leave me alone. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if Europe has that many leave me alone types, even when they have right wing governments, they're often interventionist right wing governments. Yeah. Right. Maybe, I don't know if it's unique to American conservatism, but it's definitely more emphasized here than elsewhere. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm, that sounds right to me. Because in, in Europe, they have they have the takings coalition and the takings more coalition <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> instead of the leave us alone. All right, well, let's let's dive into a few subgroups. He says uh, the, the leave us alone coalition is comprised of first taxpayers who want to lower taxes, businessmen and women, entrepreneurs, investors who wish to run their own affairs without being regulated and taxed out of existence property owners who do not wish to be taxed out of their homes or property, gun owners protective of the Second Amendment, homeschoolers who are willing to spend the time and energy to educate their own children, conservative members of various communities of faith who wish to be left alone to practice their faith and pass it on to their children. So he says the cre- basically the creed for the Leave Us Alone Coalition, they're brought together by many issues, he says. Its members do not necessarily agree on some manifesto or confession of belief. There's no checklist where all members agree, but they find themselves shoulder to shoulder working together for the same candidates and over time the same party because of the issues that move their votes. They want from government, all they want from government is to be left alone. So starting with the taxpayers, he says, these are Americans whose primary vote moving issue is keeping their taxes low. They believe the paychecks they earn belong to them. And they react strongly to all efforts to raise taxes. Hey, I can, I can, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can uh, associate with that. In fact, yesterday I was doing my taxes. You know, end of February here, want to get the taxes done, and uh, just was reminded the um, uh, the obscene amount of money that I pay in taxes, and 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 of course I'm like, and how little of it actually goes to, you know, worthwhile causes. Yeah, and, and Norquist talks also about like especially how small business owners see this more than the rest of us because they pay taxes quarterly. If they have employees, they have to withhold for those employees and send that, you know, so there where a lot of us, if you're getting regular W2 income, you know, ordinary income that you get from a salary for working for somebody or some company, you know, you're paying taxes. You look at your pay stub, you see it come out. 
you do if you know the end of the year you you see that line on the tax return it says you know total tax and that's sometimes higher than you wish it it's always been higher than i wish it was but with the way withholding works you don't always see it quite as well and uh yeah. i think that's part of why um, small business owners are really into that tax piece of the leave us alone coalition because they see it you know they they write the check in a way that most of us never have to do you know because they it's already taken out for us. We never even get to, to hold that money before we send it on. So it's, uh, you know, and that's, that's why I've, I've, I've written before that they should send your receipt, you know, six months after the taxes are paid. So here's how much you paid. Remember, here's what we spent it on. Look at this is the federal budget. Here's a pie. Chart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that would turn a lot of uh, people Republican, you know, especially right before an election. So, wow. That much. Cause we don't think about it, you know, I mean, I think week to week, we don't often consider it, but for those who do, it's definitely a motivating factor in how you're going to vote. I love that idea. And I've said for a long time, what we need is to just have all like the businesses, the taxpayer, just sit down, sit down and cut a check instead of, instead of um, a payroll taxes mm -hmm. um, and just a deductions from your check, like have to sit down and cut the check. And, and that would, I mean, people's eyes would widen. So uh, beyond the taxpayers, we have, he says, uh, businessmen and women. He says, self-employed, independent contractors, franchisees, and entrepreneurs who do not want their businesses overtaxed or regulated. They understand that jobs are created, not given. They do not ask for favors from government. They simply want to be left alone. And to put a finer point on it, he's, he, he goes into a description. He says, Democrats believe that government can or should create jobs or give you a job. But, you know, actual business owners, small business owners, they understand that jobs are not created by government. Mm -hmm. They're created by the market. You know, government cannot create. It can only take and relocate. It can only redistribute. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about job guarantees, which even though don't even come up that much on the left anymore, you know, only on like the real Bernie Sanders left will they talk about guaranteed employment and the right to a job, but they never explain what that person's going to do. You know, like... How is this different from a welfare program? If mm -hmm. the government's just making up jobs that don't need don't need to be done, they never get the follow up question. And that's just because of the way the the mainstream media is structured. They they hear that they oh okay sure he's going to guarantee jobs, you know. But yeah, anybody who's who's worked in a business, even the people who don't own the business, if you've if you've worked in some sort of dynamic market based industry before, you you know that. I mean, you know that. Jobs come and go based on supply and demand, based on how the economy is doing, based on whether your product is any good. And it's um, it's got to be frustrating to hear people talk on the yeah. left about, oh, we're gonna we're gonna grow jobs in this country. Well, but how? None of your policies are about leaving businesses alone to to grow those jobs. They're all about there's gonna be a targeted tax break for you know it's some sort of like if you're gonna file you're gonna fill out reams of paperwork for the federal government and get a little bit of your taxes back. And we're going to tell you, you have to hire somebody. And it, it's just, it's a big mess and they don't, it's frustrating because they don't, they know that jobs are important. They just don't seem to understand that they don't come from uncle Sam. Yeah. He's got this great analogy. He says government can take money out of the real economy and drag the money into the government coffers and spend it to quote unquote, create a new job. He says, this is the economic equivalent of taking a pail of water 
out of one side of a lake and walking around the lake, spilling some of the water and then holding a press conference surrounded by cameras to be filmed, pouring what is left in the bucket into the lake. Vote for Fred. He's filling up the lake with water. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's right on. I mean, that's, uh, that's what we have, let's say with the, with the green new deal, let's, let's take resources and, and money and, and what is created and generated by the free market and let's move it around. Let's launder it through DC and then we'll call it a jobs program. The, you know, a power plant takes, you know, requires two or 300 people, a coal plant to operate it. And, uh, on the other hand, a a wind farm takes about three or four people working remotely, probably in another state (laughs) and a couple guys who, who do maintenance. So you're trading 250 jobs for about, you know, six or seven jobs. Green new jobs created. Yeah. The math on that's always been pretty fuzzy. And I say the same thing about, you know, uh, infrastructure, although I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of, of highways and, and updating our infrastructure and, and so forth. But the Democrats will always argue that this is a, this is a jobs program. What we need is a big stimulus to, to generate new jobs. No, what you're doing is you're taking money out of people's pockets to say, to, to move it over here and say, no, you use that money. You know, you're not generating anything new. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. you're taking and you're relocating. He says politicians claim the money was free, came from nowhere, had no cost, was being paid for by others, namely big corporations. <laughs> and uh, and I think there's plenty of examples of this healthcare, you know, for all, you know, Medicare for all for free, college loans, forgiveness for free, you know, uh, this stuff got it's, it's got to come from somewhere. These uh, you know, prescription drugs, let's say, um, for example, the, the for the coronavirus, mm-hmm. the vaccine for coronavirus, we, we, we need something like uh, developed quickly and, and effectively. You know, that's not going to come from a bunch of bureaucrats like sitting around. And look, I'm not the biggest defender of drug companies, but that's where our drugs come from, right? I mean, somebody has to develop it. Somebody has to do the research. Somebody has to dump in, uh, you know, the, all the R&D costs, which is, you know, adds up to billions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And they already have it set up. They already have the infrastructure for that. They know how to do it. And it, and they've been doing it for years. All of the yeah. different drugs that people take, you know, to make their lives a little bit better, uh, make their health a little bit better. It, it, none of it's coming from government, but, but sure. Let's, let's blame Trump for the coronavirus existing, which yeah. seems to want to do it. <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. So next, the next group, he says there's second amendment voters. Uh, at the time of this writing in 2008-2007, he said 90 million gun owners and 20 million hunters. And he says those who vote on Second Amendment issues are strong members of the coalition. They do not want anything from anybody. They just want to be left alone with their guns. And there's no doubt that this is a, a very strong and you know powerful group. And uh, I, I always get irritated when I, I hear all these uh, elite talking heads on the cable news channels talking about how the power that the NRA wields and, you know, the NRA itself is evil. And I'm not going to share my views on that, but I will say like the NRA itself has no power at all. I mean, their, their only power is the power to mobilize. They're not telling people what to do. They're channeling basically what, what these gun owners feel and passing that information along to, to the politicians. And it just turns out that there's a lot of gun owners who have, who are deeply passionate about 
leaving their guns alone. I think that's exactly right. You often you often hear this conspiracy theory almost that the NRA is throwing around money in these elections, and the amount of money they're throwing around is minuscule compared to, you know, compared to union spending, compared to you know corporate oh, yeah. PACs, compared to like super PACs. That it's not the money. It's you know the members actually believe it. That's the you know, and, and we saw this this year, I think, because the NRA has kind of been fighting itself for the last year and it's, you know, there's a lot of infighting and they're suing each other and it's really not been doing as much. But when they tried to ban a bunch of different guns down in Virginia, people mobilized and it wasn't because yeah. the NRA yeah. gave them marching orders. It's because they wanted their natural rights protected and they showed up and, and the Virginia State Senate, I believe, voted down that bill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they saw the people in the streets and they saw, you know, how many of their constituents were serious about this issue. And more importantly, as Norquist writes, they vote on this issue. That's, yeah. that's one of the, the bigger points of this book. You know, as, as we're going through these different parts of the coalition, you'll see the, oh, this, this group, but they disagree about this thing, you know, and they're, you know, it's like how the reporters are always talking about the Republican civil war that's coming, you know, between this faction and this faction. And it never happens mm-hmm. because... It's Norquist, right? Just because you have an opinion about something, that's not necessarily the opinion you're voting on. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some of these guys who their number one issue is the Second Amendment, you know, they might be, they might uh, support the Green New Deal. They might be pro choice. They might be, you know, for higher taxes. But the right that's the most important to them is the one that's threatened by the left. So they're going to be on the right. And that's, that's that, you know, even if when you ask them 10 different questions about politics, they might disagree on eight or nine of them. It's the one that's important. I think that's absolutely right. And we, we saw this the other night when in the Nevada, I think it was the Nevada debate where uh, Bloomberg challenged Bernie's voting record on, on, on gun control. Bernie's from Vermont, a state full of gun owners, and they are very proud gun owners. And so he, so Bloomberg challenged him on his votes against gun control and, and, you know, and Bernie gave a mealy mouth answer, which amounted to, well, I wanted to win elections in Vermont. <laughs> yeah. So I had to vote against gun control. Yep. Now that I'm running for president, <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. But uh, it goes to your point that, you know, the people of Vermont are not what you would call like, you know, wild eyed far riders. You know, no. they just but they want but they vote on their guns. So, hey, look, Bernie, Medicare for all, all good. Free college. Great. Don't touch my gun, though. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's folks out there like that, and there's folks out there for, for most issues. I think it's just that uh, Second Amendment voters, there's more of them. So it yeah. forms, a, forms a bigger block. All right, so the next group he, he names is the homeschoolers. He says, small but powerfully motivated group of parents who have decided to educate their own children at home. This movement grew in response to unhappiness with the quality of public education and the concerns of some religious parents about the increasingly secular school system. Today, homeschoolers are only 1% to 2% of the population, but they punch above their weight class. They don't ask for anything, only to be left alone. I can attest to this. Uh, my wife and I homeschooled our kids for, um, for several years. And, uh, yeah, homeschoolers, they know how to, they know how to fight politically. <laughs> and it matters a lot. And it's really outrageous that there uh, be any um, pushback. And obviously, like the teachers' unions, they hate this idea because... Well, frankly, it doesn't even take money out of the school system. So, right, you're still paying ways, taxes. Yeah, we're still paying taxes. So, in a lot of ways, I think this is just ego, or you know, just a power grab. You know, you can't possibly abide that that some kids are going to be 
taught at home, you know, by parents. And of course there's the canard that, well, and if they're taught at home, then their education won't be as high a quality, which is exactly wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's a higher quality education. And I, I debate anybody on that. Or, you know, they're going to come out as so- socially inept, whatever. We can have that debate too. But, but I agree. Homeschoolers and the, those, oh, our kids are back in, you know, public school now, but homeschoolers, they know how to fight and, and they vote on that issue. So he also talks about property owners, which I think as we get down, we're getting into more broad categories. He talks about property owners who just want to be left alone on their property. He talks about the growing investor class, people who own stocks, including in their retirement accounts, who just you know don't want all the anti-corporate stuff because they're invested in the economy. You know, whereas somebody he talked about in the past might have, you know, it might have been susceptible to that sort of thing. So, well, I don't own these stocks. I'm not a boss. I'm not a, a fat cat. So the hell with those guys. But, you know, as they, like what George W. Bush called the ownership society, they're saying, well, you know, maybe don't attack these corporations because that's funding all of our pensions. Mm-hmm. You know, besides creating the jobs, besides employing us. This one, I think, is a little more diffuse. I mean, that and property ownership, too, is because there's a lot of people who have property and have 401ks, but are not going to vote Republican. Yeah. And I think that comes back to, you know, what's the most important to you? I think unless you've been hassled over one of these things, like, you know, if, if your local government has tried to tell you what to do with your property and when you're trying to do a different thing, that might make you the voter that votes about property rights. But I think for most of us, it's important, but it's not the top one. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about that? I, th- I thought this end of the coalition was a little more diffuse or, or wishful thinking-ish. I, th- I think that's right, but I would. I, I think that in terms of property owners, maybe they're part of the coalition at uh, at times or in spirit. Because I would use the example of sort of the NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard, mm-hmm. or the the extreme, um, you know, zoning laws that are that basically lock up cities. You know, I think of Washington D.C. that's it's zoned for you know you can only have twelve stories. What that means is that it the cost of of housing is just so much higher than it really needs to be because they should have double the occupancy in, in Washington, DC. And yeah, these are all Democrats we're talking about, right? I mean, a hundred percent Democrats who, who do not want that homeless shelter built, you know, down the street because it's going to ruin the, the value of their property or don't want the highway built. They'll argue because of environmental reasons, but in honest, in all honesty, in a private moment, they're just like, I don't want <laughs> I don't want the highway by my house and I certainly don't want my, you know, my front yard chopped off. So I think you're right. They probably don't vote on that, but the coalition, I think kind of still holds when it comes to the issues, maybe not the, maybe not the party, maybe not the political party, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the issue advocacy. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So let's talk about the takings coalition. He says, Once again, these groups and individuals view the proper role of government as taking things from one group and giving them to someone else. For example, taking money, property, power, and control from you and me, the taxpayers, and giving it to somebody else, giving it to another group. You know, this is the leveling, you know, to sort of solve inequality that you and I have talked about so many times. And we, a lot of times I think we, we think about this in terms of money and we should, you know, your tax, take my taxes or your taxes and give it to somebody else. But these days on the left, it just has just as much to do with power. I think that shows how um, 
Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg can be in the same party. Yeah, right. Sanders right. wants to do this with your money, most of all. Power, sure. Property, sure. But money is his thing. He wants, because he's a, a socialist, he wants to equalize income, equalize wealth. Bloomberg obviously likes wealth. He's cool with it. He's got billions. And, and he defends his right to have made that money, which sounds like something a Republican would say. But then he wants, what he wants is that control. He wants mm-hmm. to take that big gulp out of your hands. He wants to take that salt shaker out of your hands, a right, cigarette, right. anything <laughs> that he thinks people shouldn't be doing that. I, yeah, I know, you know, if they can afford to buy it, sure, but they, they shouldn't be allowed because I know better. I know what's right. You know, that stuff's going to kill you. Let me, let me run your life for you a little bit through these massive yeah. regulations of personal behavior <laughs> and you'll all be happy like me. And that, yeah, that's, that's more of the, it, I, I don't think of Bloomberg as a utopian, but that's sort of a utopian idea is yeah, to, you're right. you know, the massive regulation of, of personal life, even without regard to money, just about personal decisions, what we eat and drink, yeah. how we live. So that, but as I was reading this, that's sort of, that's what I thought is, you know, it's not, I often think of the money angle and you say, what is, what is a, what are a couple of billionaires like Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg doing with the Democrats who hate billionaires? But this is why. Because they're, they're all on the same page when it comes to telling other people what to do. Yeah. All right. So he, he includes trial lawyers, labor unions, government employees unions, recipients of government grants, and those who are locked in welfare dependency. He says the social welfare industrial complex, hospitals and healthcare professionals beholden to government funding, government welfare agencies, NGOs that are nominally nonprofit, but basically get all of their money from the government. And when I worked on the Hill, I got lobbied by these guys nonstop. That's <laughs> I, half the time I'm like, what do you even do with your funding other than come up and lobby for more funding? <laughs> uh, so those who live off of government grants and universities or nonprofits, I think is exactly right. And coercive utopians who want to change the world and are willing to wield the blunt instrument of the state to make you change. These are radical environmentalists, gun control advocates. Extreme feminists, although I think that's shifted, you know, in, in some ways I wonder if this feminists are, are there's a, an evolution of where the feminists are going to land these days with, uh, with the trans rights, mm. safety and health Nazis, he says, animal rights, extremists, anti-religion secularists. So let's dive into a few of them. Government workers. If you have a government job, you're more likely to vote Democrat. That's definitely true in DC. I mean, well, yeah. If, you, if you're, if, if you're a federal government worker working in one of the agencies, I mean, there's probably a 10 to one chance that you're a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. He draws an interesting line here too, because about different kinds of government workers. He talks about police and military are often in the center, right in the leave us alone coalition. And also employees whose job description can be found in the constitution or that's, mm-hmm. you know, things like, yeah, I don't think being a, a, a mailman makes you more or less, you know, Democratic or Republican, I think, because that's a job that's always been done by government in this country. He said, also, any employee who works for federal, state, or local government can look in the mirror and confidently say, if my neighbors knew my pay, benefit, and pensions, the hours I work, the vacation days I take, they would cross the street and thank me for doing my job. <laughs> and there are there are some government workers like that. And yeah. I think that a lot of them could be Republicans. Um, but... Yeah, the ones where if the people if your neighbors do what you were making and what you did all day and they'd be outraged, that's probably in the takings coalition. 
Yeah, it's unbelievable how many how many federal government workers, though you know, working at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which is pretty much a waste of space, make you know make over a hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Now, granted, it is an expensive place to live here in D.C., so so you're going to have a little bit inflated wages wages, but you know, I I know a lot of people back home who would love to have that kind of money. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and work thirty hours a week, and get to work from home every Monday and Friday. You know, and, and you know, have a debt level of job security where it's impossible to be fired. You know, as Grover says, in the real world, jobs come and go, but in particularly in federal work, federal workers, it is almost impossible to be fired. I think mean, he, he notes this distinction in one of the later chapters that it used to be this trade-off that government workers tended to make less than people in private industry, but they had better job security. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's a legit consideration. You know. Do people, do you want to get into a more dynamic industry with the chance of getting laid off if it blows up? You know, people make this choice, but now government workers tend to make quite a bit more than the average private sector worker. And they've got that job security. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's pretty great. I remember in the recession of uh, 08 and 09, just they'd have thousands of applicants for every government job. You know, people who are way overqualified because, you know, when everything went bad for a while, you know, that job security was, you know, paramount. That's, you know, for all people who just been laid off of their private sector jobs, what they were thinking is, I don't want to get laid off again. Yeah, yeah. But the government never decided, you know, we could hire people at less pay, you know, in exchange for that job security. There was never that dynamism that, uh, you know, if you had jobs to offer in the economy as a private business, you would make that calculation instantly. You'd be like, wow, you know, look at all these people applying for a job. I'm probably paying too much. You know, I could get I could get high quality people out there, you know, and maybe eventually they'll demand raises if they're good at their job. But for now, we could save a lot of money. The government never even considered saving a lot of money. No. <laughs> just no, kept paying no, no. the high salaries <laughs> that they really didn't even need to offer. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely true. So he also names the nonprofit sector as part of the Taking Coalition. These nonprofits that receive all or the bulk of their funding from the government, he says, in the wake of an explosion of federal spending in the Great Society programs, it's uh, in effect nationalized what were once private charitable institutions. You and I have talked about this quite a bit. And these uh, government-funded, nominally private social service networks are heavily concentrated in cities, which obviously vote Democrat. Again, uh, from my own experience working on Capitol Hill, the nonprofit sector really is is uh, irritating because uh, unless it's like an industry group that's funded by industry, which again, you know, would be criticized as a lobbying organization and, you know, a special interest. Basically, nonprofits are nothing but special interests and most of them get their funding one way or the other from from government, federal, state, local. You know, they get grants and so forth. That, and it's that, crazy. That's kind of what... Um we talked about in the in the Himmelfarb episode too is that people talk about civil society uh, replacing government, but so much of civil society is just that these organizations that may have once been, you know, community groups that raised money from people are now raising it from the government, mm-hmm. and what that comes with is all the government rules, all the you know they won't give it to you if you're not really forwarding an effort that's acceptable to government. So it's just you know I mean I liked a lot of what uh, President Bush said about faith-based initiatives and, you know, letting, you know, not prohibiting faith-based organization from being the recipient of government funds just because they also are a church or, or whatever. 
but I, I don't know that that rebuilds society because of just what you're saying. It just makes those people who would be government workers be nonprofit workers. It's an extra layer of skimming off the top before it gets to the people who need it. Mm, and it's, it's yeah. still doing, it's still enacting the will of this takings coalition. Yeah. It's yeah. not really the, the independent, uh, you know, local intermediary institution we like to think of this. Yeah. And the universities, he says, falls in that exact same bucket. You know, mm-hmm. the universities are increasingly dependent on federal, uh, on government funding and ownership. Many private colleges receive much of their funding from government grants and student loans also. I mean, and so you have, you have the state colleges or land grant colleges obviously are funded by the state, but so many private colleges too, just are not going to exist. You're not going to pay you're not going to be able to pay $60,000 a year to go to Wake Forest if it wasn't for the Department of Education student loans that are subsidized, right? I mean, yeah. and that doesn't even get into all the grants. You know, professors at, he says, professors at elite universities receive generous grants from taxpayers. I mean, that's all of their work due to grants, and they are almost universally liberal and Democrat. I mean, you know, you have some Republicans in the business schools. Yeah. <laughs> But if you're talking social science, you know, political science, sociology are a bunch of Marxists, you know, uh, psychology, they're getting government grants. And that's that's how they fund any of their research is 100 percent from uh, from the government. Trial lawyers, trial lawyers are the deep pockets of the Democratic Party. We've known this for a long time. He says they act as privateers, despoiling the economy, killing jobs and looting the retirement nest eggs of millions of Americans. (laughs) (laughs) They're powerful, too. Trial yeah. lawyers, I mean, this is so you know, underreported for whatever reason. You know, we'll talk about the NRA all day, but the, the Democrats are so heavily funded by trial lawyers who are just parasites, you know. I don't think a lot of people realize the split, too, because you and I are both lawyers, but even we hate these guys. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like if you, talk, if, if you talk to a lot of transactional lawyers or lawyers who are in other lines, you know, whether it be lobbying or, or, or other branches of the law or even adjacent to the law when you talk to them about litigators about trial lawyers you know it's it's the same as talk as what a lot of regular non-lawyers say about the whole profession yeah you know, like most of those people you don't like if you're if you don't like lawyers are these guys you know it's not it's not the one drawn up you know a merger agreement or something it's the one it's the one who's suing that organization you like because of some idiotic reason and then bankrupting them yeah all right. Coercive utopians. He says there always, there has always been a strain of utopianism in America that is willing to use the power of the state to perfect man at the point of a gun. <laughs> we talked a little bit about this with uh, the uh, Gulag archipelago. Yeah, you know? a little bit. But today, the, he says the, le- the modern left has a menagerie of busybodies looking to perfect the world through state action. And, you know, you couldn't say it better yourself. So, so many of these... Uh, NGOs, you know, like these advocacy organizations on the left, <laughs> they've got it figured out. So they're going to, they're going to force it on us. Yep. So a few takings co- coalitions dynamics. He says the takings coalition thrives when the government is growing in resources and power. There's no doubt about that. The left is made up of competing parasites, he says. So what we should do is follow a simple strategy. Stop raising taxes to finance the takings coalition our task is to cut off the flow of taxpayer dollars that fund the left and force them to gnaw at each other. Again, this was written in uh, the mid 2000s. 
2007, 2008, I think is when it was published. So what he's describing here is the, this theory that was, that was in vogue for a while among, among conservatives that's more or less referred to as starve the beast. You know, as long as let's not give them the taxes they need in order to, to waste the money. And by doing that, we'll, we'll cut, cut them off at the knees and then they'll start having to fight one another over the, the remainder. But unfortunately, both parties have, have come to the conclusion that, hey, we can both stop raising taxes and keep spending. Yep. <laughs> and that way, that way, the whole theory of Star of the Beast just doesn't work because you can't, you can, you can slow maybe what we just had tax reform, tax reform bill in 2017 that, that lowered taxes, but our spending has increased by even more than during the Obama administration. So. Yeah, it's a good first step, but uh, I don't think he anticipated how flexible a lot of people would be about the idea of deficit spending. Yeah. It's one of those things everybody says are against. Maybe that should be the next pledge they all have to sign when they run for office, is not to increase the deficit. Right, because yeah. Now, now that's when the real work begins of actually cutting something or even eliminating a program, which I think almost never happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he goes on to say the goal of the modern Democratic Party is to maximize the number of Americans who believe they are totally dependent on politics for retirement income, for children's education, for health care, for parents' health care, for housing, food stamps, and employment. And uh, to your point, their model, he says, is the European welfare state where government resp- is responsible for all these things, health care, education, pension, and your job. He says in Europe, unemployment payments are almost as high as the after-tax pay for working for those who are working. Now, what kind of incentive is that? If I stay home, I can make almost as much money as the guy who's who's working 40, 50 hours a week. And But he says the trade-off, Europeans have a lower standard of living and less innovation, which is absolutely true. I don't think people realize how much lower the standard of living of, is over there either, especially places we tend to visit are the rich cities in Europe, you know, people go to Paris or, yeah, you know, they go to London or I don't know, Madrid, Barcelona. Europe, yeah, Europe's per capita GDP and average household income is significantly lower than America's, and this is why because they're way more interested in paying for non-work than paying for than encouraging work. Yeah, yeah, I feel like their housing is definitely a big step down. Oh yeah. All right, so uh, this is the reason that uh, Grover and the Americans for Tax Reform came up with the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, is uh, that you know that Star of the Beast theory. But also, what he wants to say is, uh, we we need government to leave us alone. And his pledge that he created again has had uh, a tremendous amount of influence. The best example that we can give is President George H. W. Bush. He made the pledge. Remember, read my lips, no new taxes, and which was essentially this taxpayer pledge. And he, he, he broke that pledge and raised taxes. And a lot of conservatives will point to that and say, that's exactly why he lost. Mm-hmm. And so Grover says, you know, Republicans have learned if you take the pledge, you win the primary, you take the pledge, you win the general, keep the pledge and you win reelection, break the pledge and lose the next election. And there's a little bit of hubris there, but I honestly think that it, there's a, there's a real nugget of truth and uh, Republicans, conservatives, both for ideological reasons, that is to say, we, you know, conservatives don't like higher taxes. 
you know, don't think that we need more spending. We need to make better choices with our current spending. But it's also the case that there's a fear that if you raise taxes, and I'll use the gas tax for, for an example, a lot of folks will be okay with raising the gas tax. Mm-hmm. But it's um, it's the third rail. You know, it's absolutely radioactive. No, nobody wants to raise the gas tax because any raising of taxes uh, puts you at risk of a primary challenger coming out and saying, hey, you promised not to raise taxes, but you did. <laughs> yeah. Putting it down there in black and white really makes it easier to expose somebody who flip-flopped. Whereas if it was just a comment in a debate or in a response to a question from a reporter you could you could quibble about the wording the fact that they've got to put their name down to a very specific pledge i i think it was a a brilliant move yeah really i mean it seems simple but it really i think it really did change politics yeah it did uh it does create other problems uh which we don't need to get into here but um it has it absolutely has been incredibly influential and it, it it's kind of like lucking into an idea that that became, like I said, uh, an institution and and uh, a near nearly mandatory for any Republican politician. All right, what's your closing thoughts on Grover Norquist? Well, I mean, I think as we've said, he he uh, he initiated a change in the way the center right runs for election and how they govern afterwards, and that, that is something you really can't underplay. I also think, though, that in the past, in the 12 years since this was written, I think you've seen some changes in how politics works. And that's, it's interesting in so short a time to see that. A lot of the people he was focusing on in the Leave Us Alone Coalition are people who are, would probably still call themselves conservative or moderate, but are skeptical of the current administration. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of, if you're voting on property rights or as an investor or, you know, as someone who, you know, doesn't want the government interfering with them necessarily. I don't know that that makes you, at least in 2016, I think some of those people voted for Clinton. So how do we get them back? That, that maybe that's the next book, but I think, um, what Norquist did in, in helping that coalition to assemble back in the eighties is really, it cannot be understated. There's, there's a lot to learn there. Yeah, I think you're right. He he created a force, and Americans for Tax Reform and the Tax Pledge is a real juggernaut. And I agree too that the the coalition has been has been scattered a little. He wrote this at a time when Republicans were, you know, you had Karl Rove saying we're going to have a Republican majority into infinity. Mm-hmm. You know, it just seemed like pure dominance. And even in this book, we didn't get into it, but even in this book, he has a whole chapter where he's basically saying. Democrats, they're getting older, they're dying out, and Republicans are having kids, and we're gonna we're gonna be dominant. And it's just funny. I love, you know these these arguments from from demography <laughs> just continually prove themselves to be wrong. Yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, like like for Trump, you know, there's not enough, there won't be enough white voters. Well, it turns out there is, um, and there probably will be again in 2020. But uh, all right, that's it for Grover Norquist. Catch us next time. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you.